I do have a bit of a cough. Apologies. That's fine. That's all right. It will be a good um, cover for average questions we're asking. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, kia ora everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome back to Is This for Credits? Uh, I'm Petty Jury. And I'm Luke McFarlane. And joining us here today, we're honoured to have a novelist and storyteller all the way from Taranaki Maunga, uh, kia ora, Steph Matuku. Kia ora. Thank you so much for having me. Our honour to have you, Steph. Absolutely. Where exactly in Taranaki are you? I'm in the bustling metropolis of New Plymouth, home of one ram raid, and um, it's cold and it's not very nice at the moment. Uh, beautiful mountain, though. Beautiful and mountain, all snowy and gorgeous, yes. Really cool museum, Pukiaraki. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not really a huge museum buff, but yeah, it's good. Good place. And big um, big shark thing hanging from the ceiling. Good yes. place to take the children on a rainy day. And one of the two top wind wands in New Zealand. Well, that's right. I think the other one is around the coast on some farmer's land. There's this phase that all our farmers had of putting up wind wands in their paddocks, which were just basically, you know, big sticks of bamboo with a basketball on top, but it was quite cute. I imagine it's pretty important to understand where the wind's coming from when you're milking your cows in the, in the dark. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine that, yeah. Um, Steph, why we would love to talk about sculpture and art <laughs> of the Taranaki region. This is so artistic. This is just so highbrow. I'm so honoured to be here. Let's reach all of our audience. It's not just uh, English teachers. We're trying to branch out beyond just English <laughs> and get the modern art crowd involved in this uh, podcast. <laughs> not to make light, I'm sure you're a great artist, but we're keen to talk to you, Steph, about some of the writing you've done. Go on then. Go uh, on. How, how long have you been writing for? <clears throat> okay, well... I started writing, well, a while ago, but I wasn't very good at it. I was actually pretty shit at it. And I tried <laughs> really, really hard, as you, you do. Yeah. So um, I kind of, I, I started off in radio. I worked in radio for a very long time. And then I left because I wanted to write the great New Zealand novel. But I got pregnant. So nobody really tells you that you kind of lose your mind when you get pregnant. So the whole <laughs> writing the... Writing the big book kind of took a bit of a back seat. And then when I got back to it, um, you know, I'd heard that romance was the biggest genre. And I was like, you know, it's a billion dollar business. And I was like, man, I want a piece of that. So I wrote a romance and it was so romantic. And I sent it off to a publisher and they sent it back and said, nah, we don't like it. And I was like, oh, far out, man. So I wrote another one and I sent that off. And they didn't like that one either. And so I wrote a third one and I was getting really angry by now. <laughs> so I guess my romance was just filled with my anger. Um, and they didn't like that either. And I was like, far out, man. Like something, so, like, because I knew I was a good writer, but I wasn't pushing through. And I started writing this little, <clears throat> little kids thing. And it was basically because I had a friend who said, um, you know, my son is 14. He's a Maori kid. Um, he dislikes reading there's nothing out there that really appeals to him and I was like okay well maybe I can write something that maybe he would like so I started writing it and I thought it was okay and then this writing program came up to Papa Tupu and um, 
Yes, which is run by the Māori Literature Trust and um, Hoya Publishers has a lot to do with it as well. And I got on this amazing program, a pity. Yes, you did. <laughs> there are a couple of people there making up numbers, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did, Steve. Yeah, it was amazing. It was good. And um, I got hooked up with this mentor called Fiti Hiriaka, who actually won the Ockham Literature Prize last year or the year before. Like, she's amazing. She's um, genius. And I was lucky enough to, to have her on board with, with my writing. And she helped me finish this story that I was writing, you know, toward, for this imaginary 14-year-old boy who I'd never met. And my story was called Flight of the Fantail. And it was about a bunch of <clears throat> a bunch of kids who are on school camp and on page three their bus goes over the side of a cliff and half of them are dead and the other half are sort of left <laughs> left wandering around in the bush and they're all city kids so they don't know anything about the bush and they are lost and confused and there's no food and it's raining and it's you know it's just a bad time all around really and then they start getting these hallucinations and that's when they realize that they are not alone in the bush Doo -doo 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 -doo. and so I wrote this book with the help of um, this mentoring program and at the end of it Hoya said yay we like it we'll publish it and I was like oh my god that's amazing so yeah they published my first book that was that one. And um, a few more followed pretty quickly. And <clears throat> because of that, then I started getting offers to write other stuff, you know, for like TV and for film and for different projects. So it just all kind of snowballed from there, really. Awesome. I um, read Flood of the Fantail with the class. Uh, I think I remember I told you about it, but um, year 10 class at a boys' school. Yeah. They Did they like it? Hook one, like so. Um, it's always a good measure that class because, um, if ever you got the the book choice or novel choice wrong, you, you lose them and we well, hear about it straight away, right? And you hear about it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you would, you would. I, um, I get, I get to go to visit schools quite a lot. I did the Storylines um, book tour twice now. Once we traveled around Gisborne and we went to like 20 something schools and um, the last one I did was around Auckland and I think the hardest session that we did was with a group of high school kids nine o'clock on a Monday morning man they were so sleepy they were just <laughs> they were just practically full length in their chairs with their arms folded and their eyes like half masked and I was like man you know like I don't even want to get any questions out of them I just want them to sit up so that was my whole, my whole engaging talk. That forty-five minutes was just focused on them, getting them to unfold their arms and sit up. It was, it was a good goal to have. I think I achieved it with maybe three of them. It was good. That's not bad. That's a good success rate. If you think they're yeah. better on a Monday, you should see them on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, these boys were really engaged with it. Really liked it. And um, what I think they really liked is um, I think the age, the age of the characters, high school kids yeah. on a school camp, really, really, um, remember back in the day, back in the 80s, you guys might be a bit young, but they used to have a TV <laughs> genre in New Zealand called Kidult. Yeah. And it was it was shows like Steel Riders. I love and, Steel Riders um, with Nicole Kidman and her big hair. Oh, no, I think it was the <laughs> Henderson Kids. Was it? The Henderson oh, okay. Kids, yeah. Steel Riders was New Zealand one. Oh, was it? 
I think. I think. Oh, um, so I was only little. It's me just taking a chance <laughs> to show off my eighties TV. <laughs> um, but it, but same thing again. Why it was so big was you just saw these um, programs about young people. There was Betty's Bunch in New Zealand. There was a whole lot of things, mm. sea urchins. So there's something massive about young people seeing themselves in stories. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Also in positions of um, in positions of power, right? Eh? Because a lot, like, a lot of the young people don't really have too much power in their lives or decisions or the ability to make their own decisions. And so when you introduce characters like this, where they're put into a, a survival situation where that you know it's life or death, depending on what they choose to do, it's like in a little bit of an empowerment. You were talking about the success of that story so much that um, your boys suggested a field trip, didn't they? And yeah. you were going to go in the bus, but they wanted you to be the one that didn't quite make it. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. <laughs> I don't want to give a spoiler for the novel, but it's like your main character of Jarman, I think. We're... <laughs> that's awesome. Well, guess what? Oh. That book actually got optioned by a production company so for a TV series. Oh. So, yeah. So I've been right. in like meetings wow like, awesome. i mean i don't know like with tv and film and stuff things can fall over at any moment you know it's just such a hit and miss kind of thing so you know i'm not counting my chickens so but we, wouldn't it be we, cool to see it on screen it would be amazing well absolutely we we were looking to uh interview you as a, a novelist but now it's a screenwriter well, yeah. I mean, I do do a bit of screenwriting as well, you know, because um, I think in New Zealand you can't, like, it's impossible to make a career as just a novelist, I think, you know. Mm. I mean, in saying that, I do have, like, I know this woman who's self-published and she publishes in America and she's pulling in, like, 50 grand a month kind of thing. It's, like, oh, wow. out of control and massive. But that's not typical it's not a typical author's mm -hmm. um, pay packet so I think you really need to be quite flexible so like if you're writing <clears throat> um, you know you write books and plays and screenplays and poetry poetry is undergoing a bit of a renaissance right now so yeah um, to make the money you need to be a versatile writer okay collection of hustles that's exactly right that's exactly right Perfect. I imagine that um, I, I grew up with a couple of dudes from Taranaki and they all had some sort of side hustle on the way to make things uh, meet, or the way uh, to enjoy their lifestyle down the south coast there. You come across a few interesting characters like that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of those. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I've been doing the freelance hustle for such a long time that I just dream about having a regular job. I dream about water cooler conversations. I want to be able to say to people, how was your weekend? And then on Friday, I want to be able to say, have a great weekend, you know, because I'm a freelancer. I don't have a weekend. Like every, day is a, every day is a dance for the dollar. Well, I tell you, you know, those, those sort of um... – the ability to do that on a Friday, overrated massively. <laughs> it's everyone, not, it's my dream. Everyone in the nine to five wishes they were freelancing. We are, man. No, you man, I want office cool. politics. I want office bullies. Bring it on. <laughs> oh, I've got a job for you then. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So Flight of the Fantail and Falling into Rarohinga, both young protagonists in there, young characters? Yes. Yes. So Falling into Rarohinga came out, was it last year maybe? Um, <clears throat> and it's about twins. And I first wrote this book as a screenplay. Um, I got funding through the New Zealand Writers Guild and got seed funding um, with a few pages of a screenplay. And they hooked me up with another mentor, Hone Koka, who's, um, again, amazing. All these mentors are amazing. Um, and when I first wrote it, it's about twins whose mother is kidnapped and she's been taken down into the Māori underworld. And so these twins have to go down and rescue her. And she's been kidnapped by their dad, who is a bit of a, He's not great. He's not a great dude, to say the least. Um, so when I first started writing it, I, I made it more about the mother and about her life and her um, relationship. And then when I showed Hone, he said to me, this is about you, isn't it? And I was like, what do you mean? Because I'd just been through this massive breakup. And the script that I'd given him was pretty much just my therapy. And, you know, all about how this poor woman had been you know screwed over by an awful man and how only her children could get her up in the morning that's pretty much what it was and I was like oh my god like that was the first time I realized how writing can serve you you know um how your subconscious can do just as much writing and guide your pen as your conscious mind when you're plotting and, you know, figuring out your characters and that. Your subconscious comes in too and drives that writing. But that was the first time it had ever appeared so blatantly to me. And I was like, oh, my God, honey, this is terrible. I can't put this out. My God. You know, so I had to really readjust it and, and rewrite the whole thing pretty much to make it more on the part of the of the children and so they now they drive the whole story and mum is just you know she's there but she's she's not so much a big part of it anymore <clears throat> and it came out way better oh my god um so I wrote it as a screenplay and I finished it and I went back to the writers guild and I said I finished it yay I finished this film what do I do now and they said now you need to find a producer and I was like I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> how do I do that? So I was cold calling all these people and just like, like an absolute dick. And, you know, like it's embarrassing calling up people going, oh, look at my screenplay. Can you look at my screenplay, please? Like, what is the... <laughs> just really embarrassing. Like, are you guys on LinkedIn? Do you no. ever get, oh, it's horrendous. But like sometimes I get these messages from people going, hey, Steph, can I interest you in this? And I'm That's like, kind of what we did. Guys, <laughs> 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 I've got a cold. Don't make me cough and laugh. Um, yeah. So anyway, I was just, I was the LinkedIn saddo going, can you please read my script? Um, and nobody liked it and nobody cared because, you know, if you're putting it on the screen and you've got this magical underworld with tiny fire, like, Imagine how expensive that would be to make. It's mm. ridiculous. So um, I Lots of stock puppets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, so someone said, why don't you just write it as a book? And I was like, oh, my God, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard of. Because I was sick of it. You know, I'd spent months writing it. And I was sick of it. So I put it away. And then I was kind of, a few months later, I was like, oh, 
I should write something. You know, maybe I'll rewrite that screenplay as a book. So I did. And um, it came out really quickly. I, I honestly wrote it in like maybe three weeks, four weeks. It was real fast because the groundwork was already there. So it was just sort of a matter of adapting it. Yeah. Yeah. Knocked it so you out. Mentioned that it was like a bit of therapy about you positioning yourself as a mum. But Tui and Kai both have got mm. like really redeeming features and both sort of have these offsetting ones did you put a little bit of yourself into both of those because when i was reading it i was like absolutely i've behaved like that in both moments does that make sense yeah absolutely i think there's a little bit of me and all my characters but i think like i lie for a living my job is lying but the oh, best <laughs> <laughs> We're so the best lies the best lies come from truth you know, if you've got that little kernel of truth in there, it makes your lies sound better. So, yeah, Tui and Kai, they're made-up characters, but there is truth behind them because it's my truth. You know, I think that's a really important um, thing to be able to tell kids when they're writing as well. Yeah, you might have set your book on a, on a, on a, on a planet, you know, but the, like if you can imagine, say you're walking along a beach, you know, a really grey, wild beach. If you take the sand, the sea away, then you've got your alien landscape, you know, of, of the beach and how it feels and, and the salt in the air and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Best lies come from truth. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Steph, random question and more of a comment here, really. All your um, books have really cool titles. Uh, we've got Flight of the Fantail, The Eight Gifts of Tefiki, the Fetu Tour series. Uh, falling into Rarohinga, they got really cool titles. How do you come awesome. up with the titles for your books? Well, falling into Rarohinga was not my idea at all. So when I when I first wrote oh, it, explains, <laughs> oh, that explains When I first wrote it, like I had this, you know, when Maui goes down into the underworld and he meets his father, and the title of the story is how. Oh, how Maui met his father or how Maui met. Yeah. So that's what my title was. It was how Tui and Kai found their mother. And um, my publisher said, we're not calling it that. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, that's a shit title. And I was like, oh, bro. So I had to, um, <laughs> I had to come up with something else and you know every title that I sent back they would google it you know put it into Amazon and go no there's already five books called that come up with something else so it was real like it was really hard work I'm bad with titles I'm bad with titles and I'm bad with names names are just awful I actually have a baby names book and I just um, you know, open the page pretty much and point to something and go, yeah, that's your name. Um, and then someone changes it for you. Changes <laughs> it, yeah. So, like in Flight of the Fantail, there's a character called Liam, but he wasn't called that in the beginning. He was called Rory, but Rory sounded too much like Rocky, so I had to change it. So he became Liam. Uh, there's a there's quite a quite a, a bitch of a character in there. Is it Adele? Adele. I love Adele. She's nuts, man. <laughs> She's nuts, all right. Jeez. Does she have a piece of me? Yes, of course she has a piece of me. <laughs> uh, well, I, I reckon uh, whoever's naming your books is doing really cool stuff. German <laughs> and quite a I'll pass that on. German <laughs> <laughs> is another really cool name. 
I like Darman too. He's he's my bro. I Thanks. haven't read um, a couple of these other ones that uh, Pity has mentioned, but really prominent uh, throughout falling into that thing in the title itself. Um, you know, you got this massive sort of uh, balance between what we understand and know and live in right now, but also the world that exists in, um, in culture and history. And um, what's the big driver for that for you to create these characters and locations and to bring these, um, these figures to life through your novels? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Like, what else am I going to do? No, I guess because you have that that story in your head and most of the time I just want to see what happens, you know. I want to see how it's going to work out and then I get really stubborn with it and I have to see it through <laughs> right to the end. Yeah. So, I mean, like with Falling into Rarohinga, you know, it started off with one thing but evolved into something completely different. Um, Flight of the Fantail was like that as well. I originally wanted to write it as a trilogy, but it ended up being just one book. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I start off with an image and then it just kind of evolves. So I've got a book coming out hopefully next year if I get my um, my act together with these edits. And it's called Migration. And it's about these At the moment it's called Migration. At the moment, it's called migration. <laughs> I think that's going to be it. <laughs> you can remember that title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it didn't start off like that. <laughs> but um, it's about these Maori kids, and it's set in the future, and they're on another planet, and they go to this military school, and they're learning how to fight and how to do all these kind of battle things. And then halfway through the book, their school gets attacked by aliens, <clears throat> and they have to learn. You know, they have to use all those skills that they used in battles to fight the aliens and stuff and that just started with the image of a girl fighting you know so she just popped into my head and then I just took it further just to see what would happen I don't know if that answered your question at all <laughs> I don't think at all but it, it was no. the question I don't was. think I don't know where my question was going um, even hearing that sounds awesome, Steph, and I, I don't know if you're consciously aware or not, but all your stories, even what you just said about that one, migration, they sound really cinematic, and it's really easy to visualise that whole story. Maori kids at a military school fighting off aliens sounds awesome straight away. Are you consciously coming up with ideas for young people? Um, when I first started, I kind of felt like I had a responsibility. I felt like as a Māori woman, I had a responsibility to write for Māori kids, you know, and to put them at the forefront of um, of what I was doing. Because when I was little, there were no books with Māori characters, really. There were no kids' books, you know, with Māori kid protagonists. And there were no, especially Māori female you know, Māori girl protagonist, that just wasn't a thing. So I kind of felt like I had this responsibility to fill that gap. But of course, now there's been a huge renaissance of, um, <clears throat> you know, Indigenous writing worldwide and, and lots of amazing Māori authors coming through and lots of, lots and lots of books for, for Māori kids. So I feel really um, thankful and, and happy to be a part of that. You made a really cool comment once. I think it was in E Tangata. And um, I can't remember it exactly, but what you had said 
was along the lines of, and I don't want to get you wrong here, but you'd sort of said, hey, there's some great Māori stories that have been done before, um, but they're not the only stories we have as Māori. And so Māori kids fighting aliens and a whole lot of things are stories we don't have at the moment. And you talked about how it's really important to share those stories as well. Yeah, well, I mean, not every Māori story has to be set on a marae in the in rural country, you know. Like, and um, I think it was my publisher who said to me that <clears throat> any story written by a Māori author belongs to the canon of Māori literature. And I just thought, oh my god, that's amazing, you know. So it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if I don't have Te Reo Māori in my books. It doesn't matter if I don't have, um, you know, a Māori protagonist or tikanga or you know, whatever, anything I write belongs to the canon of Māori literature. I think that's a really freeing thing. In um, film, they often talk about uh, something similar, you know, the um, how it's just not always that stereotype of you get these gang stories or really hard lives coming through that. Again, mm. that's not to, um, that's not to fuck eat those stories, but they're definitely not the only mm. Māori stories that can be told or that are out there. Yeah, that's yeah. right. What I like, like about once your... Warrior, yeah. Once for Warriors was an amazing, iconic, wonderful, wonderful film. And it was also kind of like set the stage for a lot of trauma writing, you know, and had a lot of people going, oh, that must be what all Māori people do, you know? So I don't mm. know. It was great and it was also kind of not great in a way. Yeah, it's one story, and there are a million yeah. other stories. Yeah, that's right. Um, but incredibly grateful to have new stories like yours that have got um, these characters in powerful positions. It's uplifting, as opposed to a lot of the dark literature that we do get. It provides a nice balance, especially for the um, younger audiences anyway. Yeah, I think it's really important for... Um, children to be the heroes of their own story um i'm a judge at the moment for the storylines notable book awards which means i've been reading a lot of books um <clears throat> a lot of books coming through and some of them have the children being rescued by adults at the end and i don't love that you know, I, I, I think it's really important that if, if you have a child protagonist or a teen protagonist, they're the ones getting themselves into trouble, then they need to be the ones getting themselves out of trouble. You know, they need to be the heroes of their story. Any any notable uh, novels or stories we should be looking for, out for? Apart oh, there's some amazing books coming through, I tell you. It's just... It's so great. Um, during the pandemic, you know, during the lockdowns, a lot of people wrote books because, you know, they had nothing mm. else to do. So, <laughs> so we're still getting waves of those new books coming through, you know, a couple of years, after, years later. So, yeah. Mm. But, I mean, obviously I cannot give away any notable book secrets right now. <laughs> I shouldn't have even mentioned it. I'm a woman of mystery and I broke my own rule. My goodness. You talked about the fact that you're um, working on these these uh, well, you, these novels that were um, scripts for possible films. Have you also looked at potentially turning some of them into graphic novels, like falling into Rarohinga, bringing those um, Tanifar alive via a, a, a physical page um, visually? I love graphic novels. Love them. I just think 
And it really annoys me, people who say, oh, it's not reading, you know? A graphic is more <laughs> than reading. Sorry, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Sorry. Yes, you, you can are. do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but it just annoys me. I think it's so short-sighted and so narrow-minded of people. You know, like, because it's not just reading, it's art as well. It's, it's mm. of course, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I'd love to write a graphic novel, absolutely. But I'd have to pair up with an illustrator because I can't draw for anything. Um, I actually had conversations with <clears throat> um, with my publisher about doing a graphic novel um, because I have an idea, you see, and how I would do that, how I would present it if I'm not an illustrator, how it, how it would look on the page, you know, for formatting yeah. so yeah. that they would go, okay, I need to draw that picture or whatever. Yeah. I can imagine it would be quite expensive, though, to do. Yeah, I'm sure any uh, illustrators potentially listening to this podcast, so if you're out there and you're looking <laughs> for a bit of mahi, uh, <laughs> this is down in Taranaki. Amazing what you do with pen yeah, and papers. Don't work for free, kids. Never work for free. All right. You are worth more than that. Day trial. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll really love this project, and hey, it'll pay off big time at the end. It's the beginning of your legacy, <laughs> oh, son. <laughs> the number of times I've had people say that to me, you know, we can't pay you now, but we're going to go for funding. And like, well, you get your funding then, and then call me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be sorry when this is yeah. the next Harry Potter and it makes millions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I hate to be, um, you know, so mercenary about it. And, you know, people often say, why should writers and artists get paid? You know, they do it for love. They do it for the work. And it's like, well, we've got to eat, man. You know, <laughs> so, come on, be realistic. Um. So I had this class of boys reading your book, Steph, all about 14, 15. And yeah. what I appreciated uh, from a from a different perspective here is that at the back end, the flight of the fantail, the, the chapters almost become a lot shorter and sharper and punchier. So irrespective of the story, sometimes you've got these young readers, and particularly with boys, sometimes hard to engage. But what just seemed to be a real bonus was the fact, man, they're knocking out two, three chapters in a, in a lesson, and it just seemed to give them a lot of momentum. Um, is that a conscious decision from you with these short, some of them are like one page or, or almost a couple of sentences on a page? Yeah, I did that with Flight of the Fantail because I wanted this to speed up, you know, and I wanted, <laughs> I wanted the reader to be kind of going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Yeah, so I did make things very short. But then I do tend to make my chapters short in most of my things because of my attention span. So I can really only cope with, you know, like maybe 1,500, 2,000 words a chapter at the most because, I, you know, I find that quite a good length for a day's writing, you know, I can knock out a chapter it's quite good but um with flight of the fantail i also had the really conscious um <clears throat> decision that i wanted to make each chapter kind of cliffhangery to mm. you know to to encourage reading to encourage them to to get on to the next chapter again it's another thing that seems to work really well with that target audience again not sure how well, you've just said it, it was a conscious decision but it really works, and I think maybe the success of your work, it's, it's for young people, and just maybe it's one of the things that helps them gravitate to it. Um, you know, 
it's so hard sometimes just some novels just don't work and sometimes it's hard to know what the reason is with kids yeah yeah well some books work better when you're reading them and some books work really well as a read aloud mm. yeah i thought with uh falling to the the fact that you got the two characters and they just switched between the bold and even then it's just one page at a time as well oh that's such a good uh visual cue because I know that sometimes when you're reading these longer chapters or passages of script where uh, it's really difficult to follow who's actually talking. Whose um, point of view you're in, yeah. And it was so simple with, with that that I thought automatically then my um, young fellas in my classes that sometimes do struggle to follow along, that's going to be perfect for them. What um, drove you towards that sort of direction? Well, because they're twins and I felt like I did – wonder at the beginning you know who is telling this story and then I thought mm. well they're twins they should both be doing it and they're sort of um the opposite side of the same coin yep. you know so that way it was really easy to write and also because of me and my short attention span it was really nice to write as Tui and then switch into Kai you know um I had to do quite a bit of editing towards the end as well because I'd find that I was using some of the same mannerisms that Kai would use in Tui's speech and I'd have to be like oh no 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 Tui wouldn't say that she would say it in a different way so yeah I had to really be really conscious that they were two very different people and they used different language and they used different um idioms and um speech pacing and things like that Mm. this is a great writing activity really for a class isn't it write a short paragraph as this character okay now how would you switch it up for this person? Yeah, it's it's technical. It's a technical kind of thing to do. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, helps kids, you know, compartmentalise, I guess, use different parts of their brain to pretend to be different people. Well, it helped me, so <laughs> it must be the same level. <laughs> see? See, it works. Um, Steph, uh, like I sort of alluded to, I really like – the sort of stories you're writing, the genre. Uh, what are your influences story-wise? What, what did you enjoy or do you enjoy? You know what I mean? I read TV. quite widely and um, I go through phases of reading different genres and things. Like at the moment, I'm reading a lot of cryptocurrency as bad books. So there's like journalists who go in and do research into cryptocurrency and how terrible it is and and it's just a giant ponzi scheme so <laughs> i'm quite passionate about how bad cryptocurrency is at the <laughs> luke's just invested <laughs> massively get your money out now get your money out now it's a I'll ponzi get my 14 dollars out immediately yeah <laughs> um yeah so and um for tv i watch a lot of um i like corporate crime so, you know, the Bernie Madoffs and the um, housing collapse of 2008. It's so boring. God, I'm boring. Um, <laughs> I watched The Bear. Have you guys seen The Bear? Yes. On no. Disney, yeah, I've seen The Bear. It's awesome. I loved that. I thought that was so great. Yeah, I haven't I really seen the second season. I've seen the first one. Yeah, love it. Recommend yeah. it? Yeah, recommend it. Okay. Yeah, highly, highly. Um, I do a lot of screenwriting at the moment as well which is really nice because if you're a screenwriter your streamers like netflix disney whatever tax deductible just putting that out there anyway um 
No difference for us in the nine to five grind, but for all the freelancers out there. <laughs> I have so many tips, so many tips to make that coin stretch a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but when you go into a writer's room, you know, with a whole bunch of other writers and they always say, have you seen this? Have you seen this? We're going for this kind of vibe mixed with a bit of this kind of vibe, you know, and if you haven't seen it, then you literally have to lie and go, yeah, oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> Loved it. And then make a note of it and quickly watch it that night. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. So crypto cryptocurrency um, treatises and the beer, neither of them probably lend themselves to young adult fiction <laughs> <laughs> with yeah, multi-characters doing cool adventures. Oh my gosh, you're right. You're right. Well, um, to, to be honest... <laughs> to be honest, I do. I write for myself a lot. Um, yeah, I do. I write for. My, I'm not excusing myself. All right, I write for myself. So <laughs> and you know, if you want to come along for the ride, then go ahead. I'm not going to stop you because I like stories about um, <clears throat> about kids doing battles on alien planets you know I like those kinds of things and I you know with Flight of the Phantom like I'm a big zombie fan and I love the idea of humanity trying to deal with inhumanity you know I love that dystopian vibe which is um Flight of the Phantom it's very kind of dystopian you're in a, a different world that is making no sense to you right now and you've got to learn to cope yeah um yeah but a lot of the time it's just for me because, like I say, I have an image in my head. I want to see what happens, you know? Um, not just saying you are a teenager, but that's really accessible, I think, for young readers because it, it is really cool, you know, man, a young person in New Zealand. Well, a lot of the time, I, I, cool, you know? I think that I peaked at 14 when I was, you know, smoking cigarettes behind the bike sheds and having the time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was probably, and actually, you know, a lot of, um, I go to a lot of writers festivals and a lot of our, um, the children's writers hang out and stuff. And they do say that um, they tend to write at the age where they peaked or the age where they feel they are internally, you know? That's why we know. haven't written anything you say, Penny. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a matter of time, we're still to get there. Um, Yes. <laughs> um, Mount Taranaki was shunned or um, sent to the coast after a, a love rift. Are there any local Puraco that you shunned. were? <laughs> he just made a decision. Okay. Oh, I don't it mind. was a choice. He was like, whatever's biatch, I am out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so he chose to go to the coast, obviously. Um, yeah. Good kinder and power. Uh, are there any other local Puraco that you would you'd potentially want to bring to life? No. Um, that's not really my vibe. Like I don't know I don't know a lot about it and I don't know a lot about Tikanga and I try, you know, I do a lot of research and I'm really lucky that I have a, a Maori publisher who has Maori editors and they look over everything and they go, yeah, nah. Or they go, no, you got this wrong, which is really nice because I think a lot of writers who um, who try to bring 
Maori stuff into their writing and um, and if they don't have that Maori worldview, then it kind of comes off a bit, you know, mm. but like you can kind of see through it. There's no nuance there. There's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important and um, <clears throat> to have that if you are not of a culture and you want to write something of a culture, um, yeah, I like you're a writer, write whatever the hell you want, but be prepared to have pushback or mm. criticism or feedback. So if you do want to do that, then you better make sure that you have talked to people and that you've maybe engaged the services of a sensitivity writer who can um, look at what you're doing. And that's not just with a culture thing, that's with the, um, an LGBT thing. It's, um, you know, a disabled thing. If you are writing something that you do not have firsthand experience of, but you really want to write it because you just feel it in your soul, then go ahead, but make sure that you've done your research and your, um, you've spoken to the appropriate people as well. Because otherwise your writing is going to look dumb. It's going to look stupid. <laughs> yeah. And you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to read those terrible reviews. Spot on there, Steph. No, is that what you mean? Um, yeah, sometimes it's, it's a bit of a miss. It comes across a bit forced or a bit uh, insincere sometimes when you see those things. Um, yeah. Oh, well, I guess that happens in a number of different spheres. Yeah, that's right. And um, <clears throat> because now, you know, Māori writing, you know, as I said before, we're going through a renaissance. We're like, so freaking awesome, man. And publishers, especially the big publishers, you know, um, have realised that books with Māori stuff in it are making money, you know. Mm. So they will have noticed that they're publishing a lot more Māori things. And that's not because they're nice. It's not because they're being nice and, um, you know, culturally aware in it or anything. It's because they can make money from it. Yeah. And, yeah, so um, that's what they're doing. So you find that a lot of authors are taking advantage of that as well, mm. who maybe shouldn't be, <laughs> who maybe should be, um, you know, doing a little bit more research before they put their stuff out there. Write what they know rather than what they don't Yeah, know. yeah. 